Good morning. Um, thank you, Tony. Thank you for all the others that are in charge of just administering, you know, getting those prayer requests out. Thank you for sharing those prayer requests so we can be faithful to pray for those prayers. It's uh, just incredible that we can uh, do that as a body of Christ. One of the, you know, number of things that we do as a church, and that's, that's how we can share and also come alongside and minister to um, just a, a quick announcement, too, today at 5 o'clock, if you're interested, um, <clears throat> I'll be meeting with anyone who would like to maybe learn a little bit more about the ministry that we're conducting at an assisted care center in Roanoke. And um, the, 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 really the purpose of that is to set up a, a schedule so that we can be leading services on a Sunday afternoon and then also a Bible study, a weekly Bible study, but set it up in such a way that it's not burdensome on any one person. And so if you're interested in wanting to be a part of that, certainly many of you are overcommitted anyway right now, so I don't want, <laughs> I want people that are just maybe looking for this opportunity or looking for an opportunity to minister like this on a you know, once a month basis or whatever. Um, you can just come and I'm not gonna sign you up. I, you, you're not committing yourself to anything by coming today at five o'clock, and it'll be in here. And it'll only be for 20 minutes or 25 minutes because uh, we have the children's musical that's going on tonight, so you wanna get a good seat, right? Because all the parents have taken up the really good seats toward the front, so. I just love those musicals, you know, especially if you're a grandparent or a parent or whatever. I turn, if you will, in your book to Ecclesiastes. You know, is, is life worthless? is really the, the question. Um, in studying for this, I've, I have a whole stack of commentaries. The first commentary I opened up, the, the, the person said right in the intro that you can't trust everything in the book of Ecclesiastes, that you have to look at it and question the things that uh, uh, Solomon is saying. Is that really true? Um, I actually took that commentary and set it aside, so don't worry. Uh, that will not be my perspective today, just, uh, just to let you know. Um, but there are many people who think that life is utterly pointless and meaningless, and, um, and few are willing to take this belief to its logical conclusion. But there was a man that many of you are familiar with, uh, Ernest Hemingway, and on the early morning hours of July 2nd, 1962, he took a shotgun and blew his head off. And um, Ernest Hemingway, uh, this is what his friend said about uh, Hemingway, um, he wondered why would someone who many critics call the greatest writer of his century, a man who had a zest for life and an adventure as big as his genius, a winner of a Nobel Prize, a Pulitzer Prize as well, a soldier of fortune with a home in Idaho's Sawtooth Mountains where he hunted in the winter, an apartment in New York, a specially rigged yacht to fish the Gulf Stream. I mean, he had it all. He had it all. Uh, an available apartment at the Ritz in Paris, a solid marriage, good friends everywhere, but he killed himself on the morning. Hemingway had come to a conclusion that he did this because he was looking for a world from the perspective of one who believed that nothing was transcendent, which everything was kind of short of despair, if you will. If there's nothing that transcends everything, then, of course, there is no good reason to do one thing over another. It's kind of, kind of really what Solomon is actually saying initially. Uh, but there is no accountability, no judgment. And if there's no one to hold meaning, then life is illusionary and, and it might drive someone to take his life. 
loving life without paying attention to the sovereign God who transcends his creation is dangerous for any individual, right? And, and so Solomon is, is, is opening up this book and he becomes the preacher, if you will, and he's instructing us on how do we properly view life. He again reminds us that um, life is under the sun and, and there's also a life under heaven. So there's not an extreme where everything is vanity, vanity, but as we read through the entire book, you're going to see that we need to look at life from the perspective of being under the sun, the chaotic mess that it is, but then also we're reminded that there is a sovereign God in control orchestrating all the things that we experience, and we need to actually write that into our theology. So we're going to approach this new book asking several questions so we can pinpoint what God is saying to his child, because these are the words of God. They are inspired. Solomon is not just pontificating, but the Holy Spirit of God is controlling what he says. Let's go ahead and read the first chapter. I think that's going to really get us um, thinking about what's most important and, and the foundational truths to help us understand the rest of the book. So open if your book, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. A vanity, a vanity, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil in which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, round and round goes the wind, and its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. Then they continue to flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. He repeats that almost 30 times. Uh, Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. The people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. The teacher, I, when the king over Israel and Jerusalem, I applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and See, all is vanity and a chasing after wind. What, a, what is crooked, it can't be made straight. And what is lacking can't be counted. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind had a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and follow. And I perceived that this also is but a chasing after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Let's look at some of the particulars of this chapter just to really illustrate uh, just the, the, the foundational truth that Psalm is trying to teach. 
You know, this is not just limited to Solomon. If you want to write down Psalm 39 and Psalm 49, um, the psalmist says almost the same thing. In Psalm 39, verses 5 and 6, Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. It's kind of some of the similar things that we read in Ecclesiastes. In Psalm 49, verse 10, For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. That's exactly what Solomon is going to say in one of the chapters that we study. this, this, is, this futility then is discussed not just in Ecclesiastes, but it's, but it's mentioned in other parts of the Bible. So we really need to understand what the implications of that. Is the futility going to drive us to, to, to depression, or is the, the futility that Solomon is talking about going to motivate us to good works? You know, we look at um, verse 3. What do people gain from all the toil in which they toil under the sun? That's a repeated word for Solomon. And repeats it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times. And he's looking at the, you know, the fleeting moments of life and the seemingly small gain. And it's not just one's livelihood, but all of man's activity in life under the sun. That's repeated 30 times. You know, and you look at verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes. And then you see this circular pattern in, 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 in God's creation. It just keeps on continuing and continuing and continuing. You know, pictures from God's creation illustrate or underscore the futile repetition of, of activity, human activity and, and even the activity that we see in God's creation. There's nothing new under the sun, verses 8 through 11. He looks at the effect of repetitious, enduring activity over many generations compared to the activity of one man failing to produce an enduring satisfaction. So we take nature, if you will, and then compare it to one life. He concludes that it's wearisome and nothing is new and nothing will be remembered. It's interesting, um, I didn't plan on saying this, but... You, you look at some of the, the pond programs on TV, and they'll have an autograph of, let's say, Abbott and Costello or, or Laurel and Hardy. And, and they used to be treasured and, and worth a certain level, but now they're almost, you know, penniless because people don't know who Abbott and Costello are or Laurel and Hardy. I'm just making the point that in Hollywood, you can be a star one moment and then just um, in a matter of years be completely forgotten. That's exactly what Solomon is saying even in those verses. Think about Exodus 1.8. Think about Joseph. You know, I was, I was meditating on this, just this whole thing. He was one of the greatest famine relief operations officers in human history. He saved the world. He, he saved Egypt. He, he, he had basically Pharaoh's back. But the known world benefited from being fed for seven years. And yet, when you look at Exodus 1.8, there arose again Israel a king who what? Did not know Joseph. That's what Psalm is saying. This is the greatest man in, in human history during that time. And it just takes one or two generations and then Pharaoh just, I don't know who this guy is. Solomon's use of the term in typical Hebrew fashion is more practical than philosophical when he talks about vanity and vanity, or the wisdom that's discussed in verse 13. 
So we're going to define what that looks like, but he takes knowledge and then he applies it to life, and he takes what's known of God revealed in Scripture and applies that to life, and we're going to have a balanced, really, outlook of how to look and how to answer that question, is that, is life meaningless? You know, it's interesting, the word God is mentioned 40 times in, in the entire book. Have you understand that the covenant term for God or Yahweh is not in this passage? It's more the sovereign God, the God who's in control. So even the mention of God, is, is, is he's being intentional, the fact that, 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 that things may seem really chaotic, but there's someone, a master controller, he's, he's overseeing and planning and ordaining. And, and just because we're believers doesn't mean we have the right to know what that plan is. We're under the sun, and, and we're reacting. We, we get in the car, right, when you take your driver's test. And you, you, what's the first thing they do? Well, they make sure you can see, right? Because they don't, they don't want to get in the car and start driving if you can't see. And, and so Solomon is going to paint us a picture of how we can see clearly as we drive through life's trials. Because life is hard, as all of you know, even some of our prayer requests today and over the time. Life is, is hard. Can we know everything? No, it's like the wind. Much of what is desirable in life cannot be held in one's hand. You know, my, my friend Colonel Welt Williams has been launched into space many times. And standing on a grass field in Kazakhstan, you know, watching this, this, this rocket propel him, you know, into space... What an incredible um, experience that was to feel the, the pounding of, of, of the, 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 those rocket engines. And, the, and, and it was a nighttime. Uh, and just to experience that is one thing. But to know all of the, the, the computer technology and the people that are driving this and the mission control to get him from the ground to space... You know, I don't have any idea or even comprehend all of, the, uh, all of the, the planning that went into that launch. And that's exactly where we're at as believers. We're, we're on the ground and we're experiencing life, but yet God is in control and he's sovereign. But our experiences is that things are chaotic, aren't they? And our experiences is that we wake up in the morning and we go, oh, no. Hey, I've got to face this trial. And, and that's really where Solomon is coming. How do, we, how do we deal with life? Do we just throw it all away and, and do we just, are we just depressed? Or are there elements of life that we want to grab onto and enjoy and experience? So Solomon, through the control of the Holy Spirit, is emphasizing that life on this earth as we know it now is broken, Right? And this is a creationist uh, uh, advertisement right here. For those people who believe in gap, day, age, or they believe that God used theistic evolution um, to create the world, then, then really that's the way God designed the world. Uh, and God is ultimately the, the, the chief end of vanity because he used death and natural selection and, and all of the, all of the, the, the components of, of, of evolution to basically bring into the world tsunamis, cancer, all of these things would have been part of God's original creation. But we take Genesis at face value, don't we? And God saw that everything was very good. And so the vanity that we're going to experience, it didn't come into play until Genesis 3, 16, 17, and 18. The vanity that we see on this earth that we um, look through is we are going to be delivered from all of this with glorified bodies in the future. 
And Solomon recognizes that. But is there still good in a cursed creation? And those are the things that we want to answer in this passage. You know, the wind blows and we don't know where it goes. Jesus even used the same terminology in, in John 3, 5 through 8. I need to get ahead on my slides. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit cannot enter the kingdom of God. But he goes on and talks about salvation and the workings of God. And he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going. He's almost borrowing the same terminology in Ecclesiastes, but there is someone who does know. Uh, it, it, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit's got this thing. He's got our salvation. He's, he, he's in control, right? We may not know who's going to get saved. We, we present the gospel of Christ to someone. We don't know how they're going to respond, but God is the one who's controlling what happens to the word and how that fleshes down into someone's heart. So Jesus is even using the same um, terminology to describe the workings of God, that we don't understand it, but he does. So these words measure wisdom and the ability to resolve issues in life, but yet he is gonna reveal um, his word. We are gonna get a picture of how then we do, do we react and how do we live in this crooked world. Fleeting or emptiness, vanity, vanity, is really can be defined in three different ways depending on the context. And, and that's just a little uh, you know, hermeneutic lesson that a word in and of itself is not locked into its meaning. We need to understand a word, a given word, just like we do in the English language, to the context that it's being used in. And so Solomon is going to use vanity in, in, in really three different ways. A fleeting, which has the view that a vapor-like, we've already talked about that, James 4.14 talks about our life is but a vapor. And, and futile or meaningless, which focuses on the cursed condition of the universe. And then incomprehensive, or which gives consideration to life's unanswerable questions. That, that we can't know everything, but we can be confident in, the, in, in, in our Lord Jesus Christ and in God who does know so he's going to draw on all three of these meanings to be able to understand. And here's, uh, you know, the Psalm 39 and 49 passage that talks of the same thing about life being fleeting. And even James talks about that. And we could go through the whole Bible and find a num number of authors that basically talk about the same thing, including Job. And here's the passage uh, for John. Now I'm caught up. In Acts 2.22 um, we, we even look at the crucifixion of Christ, you know, in, in chapter 1. And, and if you were one of his disciples or one of his followers or were you that team of women that were supporting Jesus Christ, you know, just think about all the events gone wrong from their perspective. Life under the sun, our Messiah taken captive, um, tortured, right, flogged. Uh, crucified, and then his body put into a grave. Just think, put yourself in that situation. How would you feel as, as a disciple during that time? I think we'd all be discouraged like the disciples were. This thing's just gone wrong. It, it, what's going on? And they couldn't understand what God was doing. Even though they had the scripture, they had prophecy, they had Isaiah 53, they had all the other Psalm 22, all the other passages in the Old Testament they're not looking at that now. They're just reacting to driving down the road, if you will, and things are very foggy, right? And yet, 
Look what Peter says in, in Acts 2.22. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see the, see the contrast here? From our perspective, uh, you put him on the cross. But from God's perspective, everything was perfectly in control. And that's how we really have to view life. There's these two extremes. And, and we're limited in our knowledge, but God's not. And, and so you're going to see that theme over and over and over again. You know, how would we ever find clarity in the passion of Christ that whole week? How would we? we we're wanting to put him on the throne. We're wanting to make him king. We're going to take out the Romans, right? That was the expectation on the part of the disciples and his followers, you know. And yet um, the opposite happened because God was in control. And it was a big mystery until afterwards. And the Holy Spirit enlightened them and illumined them. And, and then we have the New Testament text and it puts it all together. Solomon, Solomon, Solomon. God gave Solomon great wisdom, and he was wiser than anyone else, wiser than even the, the, the gifted men of the day. Um, we need to understand that, 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 that's, that, that he was entrusted with, with, with wisdom. Uh, the Ecclesiastes is one of five books um, in, in the literature in the wisdom literature, we have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, we have Ecclesiastes, and then we have the Song of Solomon. So those are the five books, and the, and the books are the collection of five, or the books of, 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 of uh, wisdom. Ecclesiastes was actually read by the Jews on Pentecost. So this would, you know, Ecclesiastes would be the book that they would read um, in their formal worship. We need to have a, a realistic attitude about life. Um, as Pastor Tom says, ruthlessly realistic. And then we need an eye test, our ability to see life from God's perspective and not merely from under the sun. And so let's, let's kind of pierce down a little bit different now and get more of a background like I've just started with, with, with Solomon. You know, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the East. Um, there was a lot of other secular wisdom that was present during that time. Um, not only did kings come to hear his wisdom, but remember we talked about the Queen of Sheba. She's my new hero um, after studying the Queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. But with the same intent, she wanted to learn more about God and, and his wisdom. And, and of course, the preacher did exactly that in, in really grounding her in the truth of God. So who is the author in the date of writing? Well, the author is unmistakably Solomon. And, and when you... When we look at the evidence, um, we, David's son fits only one man, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Solomon was king over Israel, and so we're limiting who, who that possibly can be. Moral excesses chrono, uh, chronicle Solomon's life. We studied that, remember, in the last uh, class that he took on many wives and his whole life just went uh, down the tubes for a period of time. And then the teacher role is one who taught the people and he wrote many Proverbs, Ecclesiastes 12.9. It corresponds to his life. And it all points to Solomon, the son of David, as the author. The time of writing is about 931. So, you know, um, about 3,000 years ago, this was written. And yet, how timely is it for us today? It's just amazing. 
And he warns us to avoid walking through life on the path of human wisdom. And, and, and really, the bottom line is, is when you get to chapter 12, he's going to encourage us to live by the revealed wisdom of God. Uh, this is his uh, territory, if you will. This is where he ruled, just to get a map. I like to map. You can visualize it. That was his kingdom. Uh, undivided. Israel's all together, so you don't have the, you know, ten to the north and one and a half to the south tribes. You know, we're all, it, this is just an incredible time period where the kingdom is experiencing much peace. In Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12, uh, you know, we're, it, it's, it's really important to understand that um, Solomon probably lived a, a very, very long life before he wrote Ecclesiastes. In fact, his body is beginning to require Motrin in uh, chapter 12. And he needs to see a dentist. And he needs to see a optometrist. And all the things that he enjoyed during the, his livelihood now are being taken away slowly because he's getting an old body like me. And, and so that's why we surmise that Ecclesiastes was written by someone who experienced what was recorded in chapter 12. So he, what happened? What was the difference? So he, he, he came to a, a knowledge and of repenting of his sin and a faith in God, I personally believe. And so Ecclesiastes is really that book to basically normalize his life after a life of extremes. I believe that he repented of his sin. Uh, late in his life, he turned to the, to the Lord. He allowed the wives that he had married before, contrary to God's law, turn his heart. And now his heart is back on the Lord. He had a kind of a synchronistic type of religion where he was going and worshiping in the temple, but then he was going to other temples too and sacrificing to Moloch and all the other garbage that was present during his time. You know, God spoke to him twice, and he sent three different men to be a source of discipline in his life. And, and so that's where we need to understand that um, in, uh, I don't know if I had verse 14 up there, but in verse 14, um, uh, a number of things happened uh, where um, he was uh, tempted. It's uh, 1 Kings eleven fourteen through 40. He raised up an adversary against Solomon. It was Hadad the Edomite. And there were two other people, including a man by the name of Rehoboam, or Jeroboam, I'm sorry. Jeroboam was... Uh, a, a person who would basically was going to divide everything and um, divide the kingdom, and he was the third enemy, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, chapter 11, verse 26. And, and, and we have that uh, that ensues. Now, all of this taking place with Jeroboam, Rehoboam, and that whole mess just shortly after Solomon's, Solomon's death. So having laid the groundwork um, just the initial groundwork. We're, we're just going to kind of spiral down and just kind of open up this book you know, because that's going to be our purpose for the next, uh, the weeks to come. But here's the outline. I, I, it's, in, it's on your handout. But uh, this is the over. It's a very, very hard book to outline. It's like First John. And, um, you know, but you have two major themes that we'll talk about when we get to the theme slide. 
But uh, this is the outline, and I like the way the um, MacArthur Study Bible uh, put it together. So this is the one I borrowed. And you have it in front of you. And we are just going to be in chapter 1 today. And so let's um, answer some of the questions um, about this book. And, and first of all, um, what are the, the difficulties in interpreting and understanding this book? And I have all the questions written on your handout so you can kind of scribble some answers or things that really stand out to you. You may know a lot of what we're going through today, as Tony said, but I will tell you, after studying this book, it, I have a whole new appreciation for it, and it's really helping me as a roadmap as I, as I live my life out in the latter years. You know, on the one hand, you, 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 you read Vanity of Vanities, and on the other hand, eat, drink, and be joyful. And, and so you see these, how do you put these two, two, two conflicting things together? So that's a, a difficulty that a lot of people have. And there are different, difficult passages in here. It says, don't, don't be all uh, righteous or overly wicked. What does that mean? Or, you know, all men are die like beasts. You know, like, you're, I'm a dead dog is basically what he's saying. You know, what does that mean? You know? Um, and, and real quick, all he's saying is that all creatures die in a cursed creation. So he's not trying to equate us with dogs or animals, but he's saying that we all meet the same result unless you're the Lord Jesus Christ who rose on the third day. But he makes it clear in other places that death is not the end for the human soul and that we need to, to, to remember our creator uh, in, in chapter 12, because there is an afterlife, and, and we are going to be accountable to a great God, yeah, which takes us to the, the uh, basic approaches to this book, and that's what's on your side. There's really three main approaches to, to Ecclesiastes. First of all, um, this is, and I take the last approach. The first one is, is that Solomon wrote this book um, for unbelievers, that's just if you're a believer, don't even worry about looking at the, the book. For someone who is who is you know entrapped like a Hemingway, if you will, or, or someone else who who you know who's a pagan who is just basically totally enthralled in the in 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 a lifestyle. That 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 this book is for that person. So that's the first approach. So you know if that were the case, then we probably wouldn't be teaching it here for the next several weeks, right? Uh, the next approach is, uh, it was written to show believers that uh, vanity of life apart from God. In other words, uh, all of life is just vanity. All of it. And, and we need to, you know, it's almost like this dualistic thing. We need to just, we just need to, to get into the scripture and we just need to, we just need to think about God and, and forsake everything that this life has to offer. That's the second interpretation of this passage. But the third view I think is, and I know to study it, is, is really what Solomon is saying. And the one I take, it describes vanity of life, even with God, even in Christ. And, and we can't escape, to put it bluntly, the consequences right now, the here and now of edemic sin, right? I mean, we have people in this room that are struggling with cancer. Uh, we have people that are struggling with the physical ramifications. We have people that are struggling financially at work or they're being persecuted. I mean, even in Christ, life is difficult. And, and, and so I think, and I'm teaching this in the way that, that, that basically suggests 
that Solomon is saying, how do we navigate through life? How, even as a righteous believer for the New Testament in Christ, how do we live? Do we forsake everything? Do we not enjoy life? Or is there a balance, a balance there? And, and that's, that's uh, really the focus. Under the sun mentioned exactly 29 times. And, and just to, to know that there's just a num- number of other passages in the Bible which talk about um, how we should live and, and enjoy God's creation. And that's going to be the, the answer. But, but first of all, the preacher, what's the title's meaning and what is his role as the preacher? And, and knowing what Solomon's role is is going to help us to understand how important this book is. Uh, Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek and Latin term uh, or translation. Uh, The Greek um, uh, version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, uh, is the term is Ecclesiastes, and it comes from the Greek word ekklesia, right? And many of you are familiar, your Greek students know ekklesia means uh, assembly or congregation, uh, both the Greek and Latin versions derive their titles from the Hebrew, um, the koleth, which means the one who calls or gathers the people. So it refers to the one who addresses the assembly, the preacher. And preacher is mentioned a number of times. So Solomon is the preacher and he's preaching something. Is it vain words? Uh, is it is untruths like that one commentary said? Or is the preacher properly guiding us through life because he's being controlled by the Holy Spirit and he's taking the wisdom that he's learned and the lessons learned in his repentance and, the, and, and his theology now and is he forming now a strategy of how you and I need to live. Preachers mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 12, chapter 7, 27, and chapter 12, 8 through 10. Ecclesiastes 12 um, is something that is, is, is re- one more thing before we go to the 12. Um, there were really three roles in the, in the Old Testament. I didn't really understand this. There are three functions. There was the priest, the wise, and the prophet. If you want to write down Jeremiah 18, 8, 18, 18, 18, don't turn to it now because it's really a, a difficult, you know, Jeremiah is being abused in this chapter, but in, 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 in the contest, it talks about three roles, three spiritual offices in Israel. One was a prophet, uh, number two was the priest, and then there was a wise man or the sage. And, and so Solomon is really, I believe, uh, taking the role of the sage as the preacher, and, and so that would be his role in writing this book. He was the wisest man ever, uh, except for our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he's been, again in verse 12, he's been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And he was magnified in wisdom, chapter 1, verse 16. And we talked about all of those things. Uh, besides being a teacher, he taught the people knowledge. He, he sought to find pleasing words in, in Ecclesiastes 10, uh, I'm sorry, 12.10. The sayings of the wise are like goads. Um, you know what a goat is, for those of you who attend a cattle. Uh, it's, a, it's a sharp stick. It's a stick with a sharp thing on the end, and, and you goad a, a, a cow in one direction. Unless you're um, uh, Ivan and Jackie uh, Carlson. Now they, they have these dumb little, um, not dumb, they have these little um, uh, 
rubber things that they basically, you know, tap on the cows to get them to, into the bin where they're going to give them the shots. So they took, they took me out to, to do that one time. And, um, and so they gave me this little, you know, swimming pool foam thing, and you're just bumping it on the side. You know, some cows don't really care about that. And um, Moon Pie, one of their cows, um, stampeded me with my little, you know, and so I, I wish I'd had a goad then. Because I would have taken that goad and gorged Moon Pie. You don't tell them I said that. They're not here, are they? Good, they're in the sex. Good, good, good. Okay. <laughs> moon Pie had a baby yesterday, so they sent me a picture of Moon Pie. And um, the baby looked like a miniature Moon Pie, so now we got two of them. <laughs> anyway, the, the goad is to teach people knowledge. And so Solomon is even referring to these words, this, this whole book, as a goad to, to prod all of us in the right direction. He wrote 3,000 proverbs, and those are the ones that he wrote. It doesn't talk about the ones that he assembled or he arranged. And, and, and notice verse 10 in chapter 12. The preacher sought to find delightful words. Delightful words. You know, even for the unsaved, um, they love... Um, they love uh, the book of Solomon. And so those of you who are, you know, um, younger, um, the birds. I had this album when I was a kid. And, and what was their number one song? Turn for every turn. turn. I'm not going to sing it. You don't want me to sing it. I'm not in the choir for a reason. But that was the birds. So they took that chapter, you know, all, uh, from, from the Ecclesiastes, and it became a hit. And you can even still hear it on the radio if you listen to the 70s channel or the 60s channel. And then, of course, um, Hemingway wrote a title, The Sun Never Rose on, well, that's, that's the, the, but uh, the, the Sun Also Rises, and that was a book. And he borrowed that title out of the, the 29 references to nothing new under the sun. So uh, the word of God, Ecclesiastes, is even delightful, if you will. It says that in, in the verse, to, to the unsaved um, ear. And so we need to underscore and accentuate that. But the words are like goads. And, and notice in verse 11, uh, some of your translations say masters of collections. And so you almost think the idea is, is that he's accentuating the person or the people that are speaking. But he's talking about the words. He's talking about Ecclesiastes. Here, it doesn't refer to the people who master them, but rather it refers to the collection of sayings. So you couldn't even take that first, uh, you know, perspective of, you know, just ignore this because there's untruth and you have to be careful how you, you know, um, read Ecclesiastes. No, it, it is the master of sayings. Uh, we need to carefully understand every word in this book. It could be very easily uh, misinterpreted. We can't pick and choose, but at the same time, this is a masterful collection of God's word, and we need to understand that. So the bottom line, summing up all that we've looked at this morning, the book is applicable to all who listen and benefit, um, not so much from Solomon's experiences, but from the lessons learned that he drew from all the mistakes and the wise choices he made. He did, he did make some wise choices early on in his ministry. So I really think he's folding the wise stuff in along with all of the bad lessons that he learned. He, he answers some of the most life-challenging uh, questions. And um, 
we need to have the same types of, of, of ears. Um, Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, um, talks about God's creation in a sense. Uh, first of all, he's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So God's working. It's not the devils in the details. God, Yahweh, uh, the supreme being, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Trinity is working through all of the things that we experience, even those whom he chooses to proclaim the word. The Hebrew word vanity, vain life, expresses that futile attempt, and we've already looked at the, uh, the, the, the definition. Well, it takes us to the theme of of Ecclesiastes. This is probably the most important thing that I can possibly say. Um, Solomon, of course, is teaching us, but just to extract this truth is that the key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes is understanding two major themes throughout this book. And, and so it's like the it's like First John and Pastor Tom sees there's just kind of this rotation of themes, right? When we're going through John and it's talking about what we we love the Lord, we love believers, we love the truth. And, and so John taps into those three themes. So it's the same here with Ecclesiastes. Solomon is just kind of just rattling off all this stuff, almost like a machine gun, but there's, but there's two truths that he touches um, throughout the entire book. Uh, the first, life is a divine gift. Enjoy all that you can serving God. Notice that, enjoy life, but, 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 but it's qualified while you serve God. So it, it, it implies that, that we're allowing the word of God to orchestrate the decisions that we make, but marriage is wonderful. Uh, a, a prime rib steak dinner is incredible. Uh, a dessert um, is, you know, one of those chocolate melted, you know, um, you know, thousands and thousands of calories a meal. We, we can't eat it every day, of course, but he wants us to enjoy life. Go out and sit in a chair and just listen to the birds singing, you know, um, or watch a sunset. Uh, my dad and I used to go up to the point in Pacific Palisades, California. Every day we'd, we'd take our dog. It was about 6.30. We'd go to the point and sit there and watch the, the sunset, you know. But life is a divine gift, isn't it? I mean, we are so many things that we enjoy, right? Or we are able to enjoy now. But things are going to change, right? Even in our own lifetime as our body deteriorates. But until then, it's not grab all the gusto. That's, that's hedonistic. But it's enjoy the things that God has providentially brought into your life. A relationship. A, a, a wonderful trip to, um, you know, London. A, an opportunity to go to Hawaii, you know, and sit on the beach and see turtles, you know, there. It, these are all things that we can experience in life. And the second theme is life has serious limitations in God's cursed creation. So I wrote those down. Those are the two things that I think you need to remind yourself when you are going through this chapter. You know, in chapter 224, um, and, and there's really primary passages which touch 
the theme that we're talking about. So in, in, on the good side, um, there's nothing better there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. That's in chapter 2, verse 24. So if you want to read that in Ecclesiastes, that's, that's a theme, okay? And it's a single, simple, single propositional statement. Enjoy life, okay? But in chapter 3, verse 12, he intensifies that a little more. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift of God. So he's intensifying that, isn't he? Uh, in chapter 3, 22, I've seen that nothing is better than the man should be happy in all his activities, for that is his lot. In chapter 5, verse 18, uh, here's what I've seen to be a good, good and fitting. Notice the marginal note in verse 18. It's beautiful. He says, I've seen a life to be beautiful. These are the things that I've experienced in my life. It, these are the good and beautiful things to eat and to drink and to enjoy oneself. There's that prime rib dinner. You know, I kind of, kind of gravitate toward the, the meat side, not the, the vegan side. You know, you, you don't go to a steakhouse and order vegetables. Some people do. <laughs> but anyway, it's a gift from God, verse 19. But then there's a, a progression, you know, in 5.18. Here is what I have been seen to be good and fitting. Take note of what I've discovered. He urges us now to consider what he has come to understand. And then if we go to chapter 8, verse 15. So I commended pleasure. I commended. He literally says, I praise joy. There's nothing better. Eat, drink, and be merry is a bad translation. But eat, drink, and be joyful. Life is good. I praise joy, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun. There's nothing better except to eat and to drink and to rejoice. But then look in chapter 9. Uh, go then, eat your bread and happiness is turned into a command. So he started with a proposition, and he's ending with, with a command. He's urged us to consider it, and now he commands us. It's a command to follow. Go then, eat your bread and happiness, drink your wine. With a cheerful heart. Why? For God has approved your works. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. You know, we don't have to be guilted about enjoying life. We just need to make sure it's within the context of, 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 of including God in that experience. In all experiences. Chapter 11.7 balances the scale. It's, a, it's, it's important to counterweight what we've discovered so far. You know, life is pleasant, right? But, but we also understand that, that life is, is hard. But if you want some, another, write down Acts 14, 17 and 1 Timothy 6, 17. I think I have them up here. Mm, no, I don't. But the passage is, is Acts 14, 17 says, He did good. He gave you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Uh, that's the Apostle Paul addressing, is he addressing believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers, that's Mars Hill. Isn't that cool? And so, so Paul is saying that, that for all of life, believers and unbelievers, we have these common graces that we experience. In 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope. So that means I guess we need to sell all of our monies and, and become poor and, you know, put on sackcloth, right? 
But he says, he goes on, he says, who richly supplies us with all things to what? In 1 Timothy 6, 17. To enjoy. So even in the New Testament, even in this this age with Timothy and with the, the church being born and the persecution that's going to be ensuing uh, shortly, uh, through the control of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, we enjoy life. We need to enjoy life when we can. Life's a gift from God. It's to be enjoyed. But it has serious limitations. It has serious limitations. Uh, this, and we've already talked about the creation moment. God saw everything to be good. Yeah, in fact, 10 times. Good, 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 and then very good. And then in Genesis 3, 16, 17, we have the curse. Vanity of vanities. I think the preacher at this point is looking um, at creation through the lens of, of a cursed creation. The results of a demic sin. You know, he begins this book. He ends this book. It permeates this book, the idea of vanity. And, and we've already looked at, uh, at the three ways that we can look at vanity. You know, and, and, and so that's, that's, that's why we look at these implications that we'll get to in a second. So understand that, that there's just different things that we're going to experience. You know, life is a gift, but on the other hand, uh, it's a breath. It's empty. Uh, James chapter 4, why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? Man's plans are always tentative. His plans are not his own. Time is not his own. In fact, he's not his own. James then fires again the famous question, why? What is your life? And he says it's a mist. It's a vapor. He's actually saying it in different terms. He's saying it's vanity. So is that a discouraging remark? No. It's, it's a way to encourage all of us to basically live a life that's calculated each and every day. You know, Romans 8, 18 through 23 tells us that we live in a cursed creation, right? And not only the creation, but we also, Paul says in that passage, are, are subject to the, the curses of creation. Our Lord Jesus Christ curses creation when Adam sinned. And we're living under that, that lens right now. But more importantly, Second Peter, I believe, picks up that theme and says it's not going to be forever. At the beginning it was good. Uh, we're living in, in Romans 8 right now, but there's going to come a time when God's going to destroy uh, the, the, the heavens and the earth as we know it. Uncreate, right? And, and, and bring in a new heavens and a new earth. And so because of that, um, what type of life should we live is the implication of the Second Peter 3 passage. How, how then should we live? We should enjoy life, but we also should incorporate all the things that God wants us to do. Living a pure life, right? Uh, evangelizing, uh, telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, praying always without ceasing. And taking all the other things that, that God has actually orchestrated for us as believers, but yet to enjoy life at the same time. There's another limitation. We're under the curse, but, but, but we can't know all the mysteries of life. I already talked about that at the beginning of this message. You know, we're not in that control tower. Uh, in Cheyenne Mountain, uh, right after 9-11, um, all of the FAA information then was bubbled into these computer terminals. And it was just fascinating to see. There were so many, uh, there's so many airplanes in, in the air at any one time, you can't even see the map of the United States because it's just all of the dots. And there's a whole command center up there to, 
to orchestrate. And if something happens or if a terrorist takes over one of those planes immediately, they're going to be able to react a lot quicker than what they did back in 9-11. And yet we don't have the, the security clearances to be in that control room. None of us do. I did then, but I don't now. And it's the same way for the believer. We have these expectations where I want to be in that control. I want to know what's going on. God, you need to tell me. And he says, no, I don't. You know, there's some things that you're never going to know. We know the clarity of God's word, but the things that we experience when we're driving down that road and all the hazards come up and all the things, we have to react in a godly and a wise way, but we don't know why those things are happening at that time. Sometimes we get an answer, like Job. Sometimes we never get that answer until we go into eternity. So we need to understand to enjoy life in light of God's word, number one, and number two, we need to understand that there's limitations to our knowledge and that life is hard. And we can't escape escape the corruption of sin unless there's a rapture, right? I can't wait for the rapture. Or how about the souls that are in heaven right now? And they're, and they're separated from a body. There's going to come a time when Christ comes back and, and those decaying bodies and all the atoms that are associated with the person's particular body is going to be resurrected to a glorified body. I can't wait for that. But it won't have the effects that Solomon is describing in this chapter because we'll be no longer living in Romans chapter 8, but we'll be living in the future glorification of the saints. And I can't wait for that. That is just going to be marvelous. So there are implications. And I heard an amen. Thank you. Amen. (laughs) There are some implications that I think we all need to be cognizant of. You know, overall for believers, um, the tragic results of Solomon's personal experience, coupled with his insight of extraordinary wisdom, make Ecclesiastes a book from which all believers can be warned and grow in their faith. And I would challenge you to get into this book. I, I've been having it read to me verbally over and over and over again. And it's just wonderful to hear the words. And then things start popping out. And you may be sensitized in a certain area with the human experience. If you start listening, and you can actually listen to it in about 35 minutes, the whole book, um, depending on what speed you put the little thing on. I'm at about a two you know, you can go one, 1.5, one two. So, but I can, I can understand it. If you do it then, you can do it in five minutes. But we need to, to, to get into that book. And I'm so glad that we're going to be studying it as, as a Sunday school class. You know, um, life is a good gift that God has given to you and it's to be enjoyed. And, and many Christians miss this, right? They kind of get legalistic on you. And, and you know, there's just kind of that prune type of look and expression. Oh, I'm, I'm just really struggling and there's nothing good here in the creation and I'm just going to live the rest. Kind of that Eeyore-ish type of a, uh, and a reaction if you know Winnie the Pooh. And yet Solomon's saying, don't do that. There's going to come a time when maybe you lose your sight or you may be in, a, in an assisted care home and, and you may be feeling more lonely. But right now, um, he says, take advantage of what you have in front of you for God's glory. So don't be pessimistic and, and don't be a cynic. You know, uh, the, the days are hard enough as it is. So just look, don't be Pollyannish either. But in the sense, 
Enjoy what God has provided you. You know, have you, and this is really an application, a lot of the trials and troubles in your life, have they made you bitter and resentful? You know, that's just something you have to examine. And I know in the past I've been in that boat, in that situation. That's the temptation, isn't it? You wake up in the morning and go, oh, wow, I, what have I done? <laughs> you know, look at all these things that I'm juggling, you know. And, and then, but just to take a step back and say, wow, I had a bed. I was able to go to sleep. I woke up. I have the day in front of me. I have friends that love me. I have family that loves me. I have this relationship that God is just incredible that I didn't have six months ago. Whatever that is. And then you start, it's not being Pollyannish. It's, it's just talking to yourself and reminding yourself what you have and what God has blessed you with and understanding there's gonna come a time when you may not be able to under, enjoy those things in the future because we don't know what the mysteries in life are and we don't know how God is going to take us through or we know he's going to take us through, but we just don't know what that looks like. So it's a, a, a gift from God, and he tends, he commands that we enjoy it, always within the boundaries of his law. So life is a gift of God meant to be enjoyed. Uh, life has serious limitations because of the fall. Life doesn't make sense. These are just things that you can kind of, you know, uh, write down. Christians expect life to make sense. And, and those of us who are type A, that we're just going to be frustrated. And I'm including myself in that. And for those of you who like to control things, you know what? Um, you, you should just give it up now. <laughs> you know? Really, give it up now. Because we have no idea of what's going to come across our, our scope or what's going to come as we're driving tomorrow. We have no idea what tomorrow's going to look like. I don't even know what an hour from now is going to look like. You know, we could get in a car. I could go out there and, and, and I could get killed in a traffic accident. You know, we just don't know. And I'm not trying to be negative. It's just the fact that there are mysteries that we just don't know. Things don't make sense because we live in a fallen world, not because God is chaotic. He's going to use everything, the groaning. He's going to use the sin. He's going to use everything that we experience that is coming down human history, Acts chapter 2, to ultimately accomplish his will. And we're going in that direction. And that's why we need to always bathe ourselves in Revelation, Sunday evening service, and just, wow, it's orchestrated to the T, to the jot, to the tittle, or that's Hebrew. But anyway, to every exact character that's in the Bible, that's going to come about. God wants us to know he is sovereignly in control. Solomon looks realistically at life, and then he points us to the way of faith. So it's not the work of a cynic or a hopeless extension, uh, extensionalist. I'm sorry, I mispronounced that. It's a call to faith. It's a call to faith. And so I would ask anyone here today, um, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you know, life begins, having the right perspective of life begins when we trust in the finished work of Christ, right? Uh, through faith and repentance, placing a total trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, uh, that's where it begins. And if, if you don't go through that gauntlet, if you will, if you don't go through that, 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 that door of knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then really you can have that, that God perspective, if you will, of life. But, but, but God's not going to minister to you or God's not going to affect these changes in your life without his Holy Spirit and his word. 
So life is a gift from God made to be enjoyed. And number three, life has serious limitations and it doesn't make sense all the time. So that's where we're going to end. And, and actually, that's where we're going to begin. So I hope you're ready for this incredible journey through, through Ecclesiastes. Um, I would uh, recommend uh, one person to listen to if you want to listen to a, probably one of the best messages that I've heard in Ecclesiastes is the one that has been preached and taught by our own pastor, um, Pennington, about five, six years ago. Uh, he did an intro to Ecclesiastes um, when our church, I think, was in here, or when we were worshiping in here. And I would recommend you listening to that one or two or three or four times. It's just really well done. And I picked out some of the information even today from that message. But all you have to do is go to the search engine uh, under media and put and choose Tom Pennington and then just spell out Ecclesiastes, hit return, and there's only three messages that are going to come up, and it's the top one or the newest one. And I would recommend you listening to it. And then that way you can start. And then the other thing, have Ecclesiastes read to you over and over and over and over again so that when Dwight comes up here and Brian comes up here and I come up here and we teach this, you, you, you'll have a certain familiarity. And I, you are just going to, like t Tony said, I think it's going to get under your skin even more and deeper. And it's, gonna, it's a life changer. It's the most unique book in the, in the, in the Bible. In the most misunderstood book, and I think Satan wants us to misunderstand that book because once you unlock the, the clear message of Ecclesiastes, it'll, it'll help you and it'll guide you and it'll change your life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this brief introduction. Uh, Father, it's not these words that I say, but it's your clear word. We thank you, Father, that Ecclesiastes is once again another book in the Bible that dovetails um, what Job taught us, what was in Genesis, what was in Romans chapter 8, what Peter taught us, even before Peter was about to be crucified, that, that in light of a chaotic and a, and a seemingly um, uh, uh, you know, uh, hard earth, that we are to um, live in a certain way, an earth that has basically um, a deposit, a return deposit where it's going to be completely trashed and recreated. So, so even taking um, the two extremes, we don't um, ignore what you provided us and your goodness, but at the same time, we don't make these things into gods. And we, we look to you. We look at all of the treasures we have in life, the relationships that we have, the, the food, the plenty, the family, all of these things. And when we look at these things, we, we see you right through them. And we're, and we're giving you the praise and the honor it's when we just focus on these things and make them an end in and of themselves that become idols of the heart. Thank you for my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, Father, may we be prepared uh, adequately and, and, and ready to enter worship today and the words that you'll have for us in the worship center. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You all have a good rest of your day.